Today on Blue 58, the Packers have unveiled new uniforms, and I like them, but they're also driving me crazy. I will explain why. Then we'll get caught up on what's going on in training camp, including some high praise for Eric Stokes. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. The Packers' long-awaited throwback uniforms have been unveiled. Going with a 1950s look, and boy, there is a lot of green. But that's what Mark Murphy hinted at a long, long time ago. These uniforms were supposed to come out originally last year, but that was bumped back for reasons that were never really fully explained. Probably the pandemic had something to do with it. Uh, But I like the look. Uh, Green uniforms, green jerseys, green pants, yellow numbers, yellow stripe down the side. I've had a complicated day with these uniforms, though. And if you've ever wondered what it's like to hear me go slowly insane, this episode might give you a glimpse into what that's like. So I like uniforms a lot. It's part of the brand of this show. It's part of who I am as a sports fan. One of the formative moments of my relationships relationship with sports involved a jersey. When I was going to get started playing sports for the first time, it was youth soccer, Back in the say-so soccer days in Sheboygan County, Wisconsin, Sheboygan Area Youth Soccer League, Soccer Association, Organization, S-A-Y-S-O. Yeah, that's that's it. Anyway, uh, was super excited to get involved because I wanted one of those shirts with a number on it, like the Packers wore on TV. It wasn't the same sport, same kind of deal, though. I wanted one of those. And the Saturday of our first game, I got one. It was teal. It had the Say-So logo on the upper left chest, and it had a number on the back, number four. Still remember it because it was so exciting, and that started a a basically lifelong fascination. A year later, I got my first Packers jersey. It was a Robert Brooks jersey back when they had the five stripes on the sleeves. Champion jersey brand. Things have kind of gone from there, and I own more than the average person uh, number of jerseys right now. It is in the low teens, I think. But I like this stuff. And I like it when the Packers do something new with their uniforms. And we've been pretty lucky in the lifetime of the Power Sweep in Blue 58, as far as this stuff goes, because they've actually had three different new uniforms in the life of this project. They had the Color Rush uniforms, which are still technically part of the rotation. They had the throwbacks that they wore for a couple years that were replicas of of basically of what they wore in the early 90s for the NFL's 75th anniversary, and now they've gotten these. And again, I like these a lot. So this morning, after the unveiling went down, when Tex Western, the editor at acmepackingcompany.com, asked me to write a little thing about the, uh, the jersey unveiling, I was very excited to do so. Of course I will been waiting for this for a long time. Very excited. I've liked the jerseys. This is this is good fun. So I wrote up a little bit of something about it, examined all the pictures, things like that. And just as I was about to hit publish, I noticed something. The Packers uniforms have no TV numbers. TV numbers are those numbers, the smaller ones that are on your shoulders. They were added in college football and professional football in the late 50s as this game was starting to become a TV product so that People at home, broadcasters, photographers could more easily identify players because with more numbers on their jerseys, you have a better chance of of figuring out who it is that you're looking at, uh, either on a low-resolution TV screen or from far away or in a picture. 
it's just easier. So that became the general practice there. But these numbers, these jerseys do not. And there's a couple reasons for that. First, they're from an era before TV numbers were a thing. These come from the early 1950s. There were no TV numbers back then, so the Packers obviously did not include those. But Nike also, who owns the NFL's jersey rights, also has been pushing teams at the college and professional level away from using TV numbers at all. In fact, four recent teams have unveiled regular uniforms without TV numbers at all. The Rams, the Patriots, the Bengals, and one more. Who am I forgetting? Not important. We'll move on. Anyway, there's a fourth team out there who does not have TV numbers on a recent jersey. Uh, It it doesn't really matter. This is something that Nike has been doing um, more and more often at the pro and college level. So it, it could be that. It could be just that they're going for historical accuracy. So normally you would say that, um, you would notice that and just move on. And that is what I had planned to do. Because, but shortly after the article was published at acmepackingcompany.com, I noticed something. The Good Morning Football Twitter account had retweeted a picture from Pete Schrager holding up a jersey on the set of Good Morning Football this morning. And that jersey looked a little bit different because that jersey was a David Bakhtiari number 69 jersey with TV numbers. Shortly after that, the Packers released their Pro Shop collection at PackersProShop.com, and I noticed that in a couple of the shots of models, specifically modeling hats, there was a gentleman wearing a David Bakhtiari jersey with 69 on the shoulders. But wait, the jerseys you can actually buy at PackersProShop.com do not have TV numbers on the shoulders. And all of the numbers or all of the jerseys, again, that the Packers have published pictures of, players actually wearing them, the video of the Packers actually wearing them, do not have TV numbers on them. A little while later, Aaron Nagler of Cheesehead TV posts a picture that he got of a jersey that he got from the Packers Pro Shop, customized for him on release day, and it has TV numbers. Then this afternoon, late this evening, in fact, James Jones, former Packers player, posted a picture of himself holding up a jersey with TV numbers on. This is the condensed version, but this has been driving me crazy all day. What is going on? What is going on? Why do the Packers have multiple versions of this jersey floating around? And why can't you actually buy one that looks like this? I've seen pictures from the Packers Pro Shop, the actual store today. These are not what the jerseys look like on the racks. These are not what the jerseys look like on the display. They look like the ones that are in the unveiling. Where did these things come from? I don't know. Why are there promo shots of of people modeling, you know, hats and things, wearing jerseys that are apparently not available for sale? I do not know. I'm guessing what is probably in the works here is, or what what happened here was, was something related to the delay. I don't know what. I don't know what that would be. But... These jerseys were supposed to come out a year ago. They did not. And now here we are a year later with at least a few aberrant jerseys floating around. It's weird. And it's driving me crazy. It doesn't make me any less excited for the uniforms, though, because it's going to be fun to watch as the Packers wear them when they take on the Washington football team in late October, week seven. Still, this little tiny nugget is going to drive me crazy until we get an explanation. The worst part is we're probably never going to get an explanation unless the Packers want to come out and say, yeah, we messed up here. 
these uh, jerseys floating around are not supposed to exist, but we'll see. It's fun. And uh, it's good to remember that fun things, even the weird things, are uh, a big part of following this game. And the league, really. Because (laughs) if if you've uh, noticed anything about the NFL, it is that they tend to get weird almost as often as not. Let's catch up on what's going on in training camp. First and foremost, Royce Newman is going to be starting with the Packers offensive line this year. A mid-round pick this year, fourth-round pick, I believe, off the top of my head. That seems right. Uh, but I'm really excited about this in particular, um, regardless of where he was drafted, because my concerns with the interior offensive line are pretty well documented. I think if there is a weak spot in this offensive line, it's going to be the interior with inexperience and things like that more so than the outside. You've got David Bakhtiari coming along sooner or later. You've got Elton Jenkins, who has shown that he can play both left and right tackle. And you've got Billy Turner, who is solid, if not spectacular. The inside, though, you've got rookie Josh Myers at center, and then a cavalcade of competing characters at both left and right guard. Ideally, Elton Jenkins would be holding down one of those spots, but he is currently moonlighting as left tackle. So, here we sit. But I think getting Royce Newman in the mix helps a lot of things. First, he's a big guy. Secondly, he's a really athletic big guy. Neither of those are bad things to have around. And just getting one more legitimate competitor in the mix increases your odds of finding somebody who can do the job. So you've got Lucas Patrick trying to fight for one of those two jobs. You've got Royce Newman now. You've got John Runyon Jr. And you've got Ben Braden. They're really high in a bunch of those guys. John Runyon did not have a good go-round last time, but he's trying it his best at left and right guard and trying a little bit at center, too. We saw some of that Saturday night. Lucas Patrick, apparently the number two center right now, has been snapping more regularly there. But who knows how that sorts out. Ben Braden is one of the... um, most praised players by the Packers coaching coaching staff. And of course, Newman now is getting a chance to run with the ones. If he does end up starting this, this year, if he does end up starting in week one, it would be the first time since 2006 that the Packers had started two rookies on the offensive line in their opening game. You know who they were? Jason Spitz and Tony Mall. Didn't give you a long time to guess there. I'm figuring you probably didn't guess that. Don't worry. I didn't get it either. Uh, but both of them were drafted that spring and ended up starting for the Packers in week one in 2006. Honestly, this might be the preferred lineup right now. Newman and somebody else at the guards, Elton Jenkins at left tackle, Myers at center, Billy Turner at right tackle. If I had my druthers, I think I'd prefer Billy Turner at guard, but ultimately I think what I want for him is to play one position and stick there. Just get a chance to stick at one position all season long. And ultimately, if they leave him at tackle and just use Dennis Kelly as a depth piece, I think I'm fine with that. I think without comparing their performance on the field, I kind of think I'd prefer to have Newman ahead of Patrick, even if you've got to take your early season lumps. I like his length. I like his athleticism. That seems like an upgrade to me. You may end up taking some early season lumps there, but if Newman can jump into the starting lineup and figure it out after a couple weeks, I think that's a net win. Then that leaves us with John Runyon or Ben Braden at the other guard spot, 
or Lucas Patrick, I suppose. And if it comes down to Runyon or Braden, I don't know if I have a preference there. Runyon did appear to struggle a little bit at left guard last Saturday. We'll see. One game does not an evaluation make. And again, Lucas Patrick is also getting some looks at center, so it looks like he has a job whether or not he wins one of the guard spots. Next up, we got to talk KB on Ento again. Uh, it sounds like he's having a couple solid practices here, making plays against the Jets in open practice this week. If he can lock down a spot, that might be it at corner. We've got Jair Alexander and Eric Stokes for sure. Kevin King, a lock as well. Chandon Sullivan, you got to like his chances. If the Packers keep fifth-round pick Shamar John Charles around as well, that's five corners. Beyond that, kind of looks like KB Ento might be the, guard, the guy. Uh, Kadar Holman is a little bit more athletic in terms of pure speed and stuff like that. But Ento has that great leaping ability, and he looks plenty fast when he's running with receivers on the field. So if he can do anything in special teams, that uh, that might be it. Unless the Packers keep seven corners, that group of six might be it. Alexander Stokes, King, Sullivan, John Charles, and Ento. Kevin King honestly kind of looks like the odd man out here. Jair Alexander is Jair Alexander. Stokes, the first rounder. Sullivan, the best slot corner. John Charles, the backup slot corner. Kebion Ento, guy coming on strong with great athletic ability. I think Isaac Yadam probably doesn't make it still. If they do keep seven, he's probably it, just given his special teams acumen. Uh, There would be some ripple effects at safety, though, if the Packers do keep seven corners, because it doesn't seem like they, they would keep six safeties in addition to seven corners. That would give them 13 defensive backs, which would be a bit of a historical outlier. Uh, so who knows? Maybe this tightens up the the corner or the safety battle a little bit too. Uh, it bears keeping in mind how these things are related. Next headline we got to talk about is apparently Aaron Rodgers doesn't really want Clay Matthews. This made some waves last weekend. Aaron Rodgers, Randall Cobb, and others posting on Instagram to quote, bring him home with a picture of Clay Matthews. But he says this week, quote, Friday night I was with Dave, David Bakhtiari and his lovely fiance Frankie, and the Cobbs, and we had a question about Clay that came up because Clay just moved from California, so we got Clay on FaceTime. Those conversations turned into a social media post. There hasn't been, I think, a big push from any of us to sign him. We didn't even talk ball. We were mostly just BSing with him, had a good conversation. He's a big farmer now, kind of like Jordy. He's probably got that strength to play, but I don't think he's thought about football for a while, end quote. Okay, whatever. I guess this is our life now. Uh, As far as actual player news, Jordan Love does not look like he is going to play this Saturday. Matt LaFleur did not sound optimistic talking about him this week. Disappointing for us, disappointing for Love, obviously, but that's just the way it is. Sometimes these things happen. It reminds me a little bit of some early career struggles that Brett Hundley had. He was good in his first preseason, but hurt basically the next two years and didn't get a good look from the coaches for a while. Sometimes that happens. It's a bummer, but it is occasionally unavoidable. The real bummer here is that Jordan Love is not getting game speed reps with any level of the Packers offense, not the ones, not the twos, not the deep scout team guys. It's a, it's a problem. Um, you can't really pretend otherwise, but it has happened. The Packers will find a way to deal with it. Eric Stokes is getting some positive reviews. There have been some struggles for him. He's been a little bit up and down through camp so far. But Devontae Adams had some really nice things to say about him today. The quote is, 
Quote, he's the closest thing to Jair as far as mentality and the ability and ability from what I've seen so far. That kid is fast as heck. He can beat and get beat and recover kind of like how Sam Shields used to do. I like what I see from him. He can really go. What else do you want? It's not perfect from Stokes so far this year, but if he's getting it done enough to get positive feedback from Devontae Adams, that's good enough for me. Aaron Rodgers has said that he's going out of his way to test Stokes so far. Again, that's exactly what you want to see. Throw him in the fire, get him reps, put him up against the toughest competition you absolutely can. Pretty good stuff there with Adams and Rodgers. Let him grow. And uh, if he's growing enough to earn that kind of mention from Devontae Adams, I think uh, that is worth passing along. Finally, a good question from Discord user Old Packers fan regarding filling out the roster after final qu- cuts. Our buddy Old Packers fan writes, A question I'd love to hear your thoughts on relates to which roster positions will be filled out by players not in the building. I think punter, long snapper, edge rusher number four, and the fourth defensive lineman spot are all positions the Packers could fill after the cut down to 53. Some recent Gutekunst pickups at cutdown or late in camp may provide perspective. What are your thoughts? This is a great question and something we should all keep in mind. This is something Brian Gutekunst loves to do. Waiver wire shopping is definitely a thing here, especially since they're going to have to be putting a couple guys on physically unable to perform list, on a suspension list in the case of Jay Sternberger, if he ends up even making the roster, which he probably will, given that he's got that two-week reprieve where they can make the decision later. Uh, But they will probably go waiver wire shopping. Um, The odds of getting a guy who's going to be a big contributor are probably pretty slim. But I think Old Packers fan has identified a couple positions here, specifically that fourth edge rusher spot and the fourth defensive lineman spot, or maybe even a fifth defensive lineman spot, where the Packers could be looking to add somebody who's not in the building. I don't have specific names in mind here. That is a super hard thing to predict, but you can look at some archetypes, I think, to be sure. Uh, one thing I would remind you of is uh, is Brian Gutekunst's preference for super athletic depth at running back. So we've jokingly called it the Kristen Michael action star memorial number three running back spot. But it's guys that are built like action stars from the 80s. You look at a guy like Kristen Michael, and I know that's the Ted Thompson era, but Gutekunst has broadly carried this over as well. He's a sawed-off dude, big biceps, super athletic, and that's kind of where Gutekunst has, has tried to go with that third or fourth running back spot. That is probably not going to happen this year, but it's that type of player that Gutekunst likes to bring in, super elite athletes. So if he's going to bring somebody in, I would look for a super traitsy, to bring that word back from pre-draft stuff, edge rusher or defensive lineman. Punter is a possibility. Long snapper is a possibility, but I think they're probably going to try to keep the battery together there if they can. And given that uh, Ryan Winslow has been cut and Joe Fortunato has been cut and they've just got Crosby and Molson left of their specialists, I don't know if they're going to try to turn that over unless they have a reason to from Bradley or Scott at this point. If they play really poorly in one of these next two games, then you might see something. But 
outside of that, I think it's it's probably going to be one of the two incumbents for now. But it could be an edge rusher, it could be a defensive lineman, but look for the super-duper athletes getting cut, and you might have a clue as to who could end up in Green Bay. Let's talk blood, sweat, and chalk. We have arrived at Chapter 17. I think I've said this incorrectly a couple times uh, in, in terms of what number chapter we're on, but we are now at Chapter 17. It feels like we've been at 17 for a while, though. So, Chapter 17 focuses on the famous Buddy Ryan 46 defense. Overall impressions of this chapter, this might be the purest example, even including some of the things that we've talked about on offense, of figuring out a system to utilize the talent you have. Buddy Ryan sits down in Chicago and says, all right, we got some quick defensive linemen, we got some good linebackers, and we've got this absolute madman in Doug Plank, who's too small to play linebacker, but he's maybe too slow to play safety, but he's absolutely nuts, and he will do anything you ask him to do. How do we put all that together and make a defense? Well, what you do is you take that safety, make him a small, fast linebacker, and just tell him to cause trouble however you can. That's the 46 defense in a nutshell. I thought it was interesting to note Ryan's involvement with the Jets' defense in Super Bowl III. You don't hear much about their defense, but they did manage to hold Johnny Unitas to single-digit points. You hear a lot about Joe Namath's guarantee, but that's pretty much it as far as the Jets in Super Bowl III. Interesting connected to that. I don't know exactly how rare, but it's got to be pretty rare for an assistant like Ryan to win two Super Bowls 17 years apart and not have gone on to be a head coach already in that span. That's what Ryan did. He won Super Bowl three with the Jets, and then he won Super Bowl twenty with the Bears. It's a pretty big span. Almost a generation, and he still had not earned the top job there. He also ended up in Minnesota for a short span, but reading between the lines of this chapter and some of what I know outside of how Bud Grant operated as a coach, it's easy to see why he didn't work out in Minnesota, and it's probably good for everybody else that he didn't. Grant's teams had a reputation for being notoriously simple and predictable. In fact, a big reason that the Kansas City Chiefs won their Super Bowl against the Vikings was that they basically knew what Minnesota was going to run before they were running it on offense. That was a big reason that they went on to lose that Super Bowl and a bunch of others. But somebody running a super simple scheme that's based on discipline and execution, to you, does that sound like somebody who'd mesh with someone that Tim Layden describes in this chapter as almost a mad scientist, a guy who likes to constantly be tinkering and working with his schemes and figuring out, okay, let's try this this time, let's try this another time. You can, you can kind of see why that might not work out. In terms of the defense itself, the 46 is an absolute relic, but you can see the principles still at work in the NFL today, if not the actual defense. So think about it. The goal of the 46 basically is to bring more pressure than the opposing team can block. So back then, back in the 80s, opposing offenses were playing heavy packages a lot. Five linemen, a tight end, two tight ends, a tight end and a fullback. A lot of blockers 
in action for the offense. So if you want to get to the quarterback, you got to bring a lot of guys. And having eight men in the box with your four defensive linemen, your three linebackers, and Doug Plank gives you eight guys from which to choose. Today, though, teams are spreading it out. So defenses have to go light in response. You can't run that eight-man box anymore. But you can still run a six-man front and bring enough guys to get home. Think about it. If you've got your five offensive linemen, four receivers on the field, suddenly, if there's a running back staying into block, you're at slightly less than even numbers if you bring five. And if you bring six, you're right there in even. With still enough guys to cover four receivers man-to-man with the safety over top. That's basically the principle that was at play in the 46. And if you run a five-man front, like Joe Barry or Brandon Staley or Vic Fangio tends to do, if you use your rushers creatively, you can at least get to even numbers rushing against the offensive line. That is basically what the 46 was trying to do. Finally, in terms of Packers connections, we've got a doozy today. A little bit of a stretch, but stay with me. So Layden brings up Buddy Ryan's bounty program. You know who played under Buddy Ryan in Philadelphia? A guy named Reggie White. You know who ran something similar to a bounty program in Green Bay? It was Reggie White. Wasn't a bounty program per se, but it was called Smash for Cash. Listen to this description from his autobiography, In the Trenches. Quote, My paycheck for the 1996 playoff game against the 49ers was $13,000, but I only kept a little of it. The rest of it went to my teammates. For a couple years, the Packers players had been running an incentive program. We all contributed to a fund for the players who made big plays. When the fun ran out of money near the end of the season, Sean Jones and I kicked in some extra cash to keep it going. The newspapers called it smashed for cash and claimed that we were paying for a bounty on bone-crushing hits. That wasn't it at all. We were rewarding big plays, not big hits, a practice that the NFL had okayed, and that is no different from a quarterback buying gifts for the offensive linemen who do a good job of keeping him alive in the pocket. Did the money motivate us to play harder? I don't know. All I know is that I, the only money I made on the 49ers game was the 500 bucks I earned for a takedown I made on Steve Young, end quote. Just a little bit of an, an interesting twist filtering out from uh, the Buddy Ryan defense all the way to Green Bay, courtesy of one of its greatest players of the era. So I've got for you in this episode. Appreciate you listening in. If you enjoyed this talk, if you enjoyed my slow descent into madness, talking about TV numbers on the Packers' new throwback uniforms, and you think somebody else might enjoy that as well? well? It'd mean a lot to me if you would share this episode with that somebody that is going to grow this podcast. It's going to grow this conversation we're having together about the Packers. And it's ultimately going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. Working together, that's the way we're going to get there. And becoming smarter is a great thing because, as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.